title of our sermon today from John 21. John 21 is the passage, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things that takes place in that passage is Jesus describes for Peter his death and the way that Peter was going to die. Now, we could be a very faithful person, and we could be Peter, but if any of us were to hear from Jesus something like that, some kind of a description of the way that we were going to go, and realize that it's going to be a pretty violent death that we're going to experience, all of us can, I think, pretty easily imagine being shaken by that, being somewhat disturbed, somewhat shocked by what Jesus has just spoken to us. And Peter, having heard this and been confronted by it, turns and he sees John, John the Apostle standing there, and he begins to peer forward into God's providence not only for his own life, but he desires to know something about John as well and turns and says to Jesus, what about this man? Perhaps in asking the question, Peter is looking for some camaraderie, some small modicum of comfort, someone who can share the misery and understand what he happens to be feeling at that very moment. But of course, the reply of Jesus in that situation is, that's not your affair. What is it to you what my will is for him? You follow after me. I want to go to one other passage that is related to us in the gospel accounts because I think it relates to our passage today. There's another, there's an attempt to secure by the mother of James and John, about whom we read in the first two verses of our passage today, the, the future positioning of her sons in the kingdom of God. When Jesus brings his kingdom, she says, would you give to my two boys, whom I love, James and John, would you give to them to sit, one on your left hand and the other on your right hand? And Jesus replies this way, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink. They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. We've got a text before us today in which this James is killed fulfillment of what Jesus has apparently spoken, drinking of the same cup that Jesus drank of. And and we've got before us today an interesting collection of, of stories. One, where James is killed, martyred for the faith. Peter is arrested but delivered, and then the guards and Herod are apparently judged and killed at the end of our passage today. 
And it's easy for us to get a little bit confused with, with the stories that I started us off with and with these passages that are before us today. We, we want to quickly condemn Peter for asking the question, oh, what about, whoops, <laughs> what about John? He should have been more faithful. He should have seen that this really belongs to God's providence and not for uh, him to find out or not for him to inquire to. And we want to say to James and John's mother, you know, you shouldn't ask questions about that. You shouldn't want to peer into the providence of God and understand things, whether in the past or whether in the future, that have not been given to you to understand. And so we want to put down questions like that right up to the point where it involves us, right up to the point where it gets personal in our lives. And when it comes to us, then we do want to know these questions. We do want to know how these things take place. We do want to know why did James die and Peter get delivered? When Tommy preached on Acts chapter 8, I think, if I recall it correctly, the title of the sermon was, Why Did Stephen Have to Die? Well, why did James have to die? Why didn't Peter die? Why wasn't Peter arrested before James was arrested? Why did Herod not get judged at the point at which he killed James? Right? I mean, we, we read that he gets judged by God, an angel comes down and kill him, kills him because of some seemingly to us obscure political maneuvering that's going on, and he doesn't give glory to God in one particular situation. Well, he certainly didn't give glory to God when he killed James. Why doesn't God level the boom right then? Or perhaps after he had arrested Peter? Or perhaps before? Why not do it before? Level it against Herod so that none of this actually takes place. Now, let me just zoom it right back to us then. Why, kids, are you born in the U.S.? and enjoy relative health and prosperity, why weren't you born in Syria? Why are some of you sitting here as healthy children? You're smiling, you're happy. Well, some of you are smiling, some of you are not happy. When others have Zika or get the Zika virus, why is it that some children, and let's just take in our country, every week are killed by violence and others do all sorts of fun things, ride four-wheelers, smiling, squealing in delight, seemingly indestructible. I, I actually want to ask some of those questions of this text today because I think the text forces us to ask some of these questions. What do we know? What don't we know? And what do we do with what we do know and what we, what we don't know? So let's look at this passage first of all and ask the question, what do we know? Well, here's what we know. Here are the facts from this passage that is before us today. We know that James was martyred. The second such martyrdom that is recorded in the book of Acts. Now, Stephen, when he was martyred, got a full section of Acts 
to give testimony, to give his speech, and we see in detail what took place. James hardly gets anything. James is one of the apostles, so he's no small figure within the church. He's one of the leading apostles. Together with his brother John and with Peter, he's one of the three who formed part of the inner circle, if you will, for Jesus. One of the three, those three who saw the transfiguration of Jesus. His death is no small thing at the hands of Herod the Great, or excuse me, Herod's grandson, Herod, excuse me, Herod the Great's grandson, Herod, who kills him with the sword. And that immediately reminds us, perhaps, of John the Baptist, who was killed by the sword and beheaded. We know that. This took place. We know that Peter is arrested in this passage, and when you read the description of the arrest and the circumstances that surround that arrest, we cannot help but think of the circumstances that surrounded the death of Christ. We read that thing, we look at it and go, wow, this story sounds really familiar in the way that it's taking place and the timing that it's taking place in the fact that it's around the Passover, that we're waiting a certain time, that we're going to bring him back out, we're going to bring him to the people. It looks bad for Peter, and yet God miraculously delivers him. And that's what the point is of all of those details that we read together, that God carefully orchestrates the deliverance of Peter in circumstances that remind us of all sorts of places in Scripture. I'll come to another in a few minutes, but just it kind of reminds us of an Exodus-like deliverance on a small scale. An angel comes in the evening affecting the plans and the deliverance of Peter, which he has to quickly follow through on, similar to what we saw in the book of Exodus. We also know that God's people were praying. They were praying for Peter. And a last thing that we know from this passage, and I'm not going to go into the historical details, not even as far as Luke goes into them here in reading it, we know that Herod, succumbing to flattery, is judged by God for his failure to rebuke the people for what they were saying. He succumbs to the flattery, he doesn't give the glory to God, and God judges him, and he is struck down by an angel. Those are the things that we know, the facts about this text. Now, let's just zoom out just a little bit and say, okay, what, what are the principles that we can find from throughout Scripture that we see in these facts that are set before us? Let's zoom out. So, we know that God providentially cares for the world. In all of its vastness, God takes care of all of the, the details. So, from the sparrows to the lilies to the kings of the earth, to all of the judges of the earth, all of the Herods and everybody else, God has all of these things in His hand. We also know that in particular, God cares for those who are His. He cares for His children in a particular and a special way according to His perfect will. What else do we know? We know that God sometimes, sometimes delivers His people 
out of the traps, out of the quagmires, out of the impossible circumstances in which they, in which we find ourselves in this life. So this is now the second time that Peter has been delivered out of arrest. Paul will later in Acts be delivered in the same way. We know the story of Exodus, and we can go to a hundred other examples in Scripture where God intervenes to deliver His people out of circumstances that may result in their death or at least in other bad things taking place to them. And we know that God even did that with Jesus. At early times in his life, when crowds threatened to kill him, either to stone him or other, we see that God protected him, and he was able to slip through their midst, and he was delivered out of certain situations. Sometimes God has healed you and delivered you, but not always, at least not in this life. Stephen was killed. He was not protected in this life by God. James was killed. John the Baptist was killed. Jesus was killed. No angel came down at the last minute to set him free. and in your lives as well. Outside of the biblical world, in our lives, not all things are resolved. Some circumstances leave us in exactly those circumstances. Some illnesses leave us with damage that cannot be undone. Johnny never walked again. She never walked. What else do we know? We know that God judges the wicked. Sometimes we see it in this life, and sometimes we don't. And sometimes the judgment of the wicked can seem timely. God did it just the right time. And sometimes the judgment of God upon the wicked can seem too late. The damage has already been done. Herod had already killed James by the time Herod himself was, of course, judged. It seems like God's judgment was a little bit too late. It was irreparable. What else do we know? We know that God hears prayer, and God responds to prayer, and God acts according to the prayer of His people. We know that prayer is part of the outworking of the perfect providence of God. Clearly, clearly, Luke, in the way that he's written this story, wants us to connect Peter's deliverance with the praying of the saints who are gathered together. Even when, as it seems clear in this passage, these praying people are shocked by the very efficacy of their prayers. They don't seem to be the most faithful people in the world who were gathered together in prayer. What don't we know? 
We don't know how this takes place. We don't know how prayer intersects with divine sovereignty. We don't know why God heard these particular prayers for Peter and answered in this particular way. Have there not been in your life people for whom you have prayed and they have died? Why does Peter get delivered in this circumstance? Were people not praying for James? Uh, Did they not gather together for prayer for James? Maybe they didn't realize how serious it was. And once they saw that James had been killed, they recognized how serious of a thing it was. And perhaps then they gathered and they prayed more fervently for Peter. That's what it says in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Why did James die, and why did Peter live? We can ask these questions theoretically of a text like this, but they get intensely personal for each one of us when the circumstances arise in our lives. Things that we hate, things that are incredibly painful, and we want to know, God, why are you not hearing our earnest prayer for deliverance from this particular situation? Why, God? Well, I have, and the Bible has, as far as I know, no neat, tidy answer to questions like this. The equation is beyond our human ability to solve. There are too many factors which remain for us to be shrouded in darkness, which are full of mystery. And this this is not meant to be some kind of a cheap shot at the scientific endeavor or at the theological endeavor to try to make sense of the world. But there's no equation that we will be able to develop that explains all of this stuff, that explains why miscarriages happen to people who love God, that explains why James and not Peter, at least not Peter, at this particular time. There is no equation that satisfies us as to why some of you yesterday skied, and you were happy, you were smiling, and you didn't get hurt, you just had a good time, while other families sat with their children down at shop and wondered how they'd make it through another day or how they'd make it through another week. There are things we don't know. We, we as Christians are sometimes tempted to reduce the complexity of questions like this, of, of scriptures like this. We like the story of Peter And while we might not like it, we understand and appreciate the story about Herod, right? The story of Peter getting delivered, of Herod getting his just desserts. That sounds to us familiar, right? It sounds a lot like the book of Daniel. 
The good guys get saved, the faithful guys, the bad guys, the kings, they either repent or they get it. Of course, that's the book of Daniel without realizing what preceded the book of Daniel. The judgment on Jerusalem and the deaths in Jerusalem. We'd like to simplify it, but it just won't do. In Scripture, the books of Job and Ecclesiastes are like two pit bulls that have grabbed hold of the hem of our pants and they will not let go. They do not allow us to skip through life thinking, I've got to figure it out. I can understand how all of these things take place. They won't let us go. So what are we supposed to do with what we do know and with what we don't know? Certain things I know, but I am certainly uncertain about other things. How do I live with that as a person of faith? What do we do? Well, here's the answer I want to give you. For Acts chapter 12, and from the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, bow, pray, and act. First bow. Turn your head down, close your eyes, and shut your mouth. Behold the almighty, the omnipotent, the unsearchable God at work in this world. What has this book shown to us? That Jesus Christ, when it looked like all hope was gone, when he had been killed, that Jesus Christ was ascended to the right hand of his Father, and that from that position he is at work building the church. Acts shows us that the Holy Spirit has been unleashed. Acts shows us that the Word of God is unbound. Did you hear the refrain? I tried to pause as I read it, and I noted it in our prayers. The Acts refrain that came again to us in verse 24. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Remember the story here. Luke is trying to give Theophilus assurance. Well, James' death, Peter being arrested, Jerusalem going every which way, that doesn't seem very assuring to me. But when the Word of God continues to increase and when the Word continues to multiply, that provides for us assurance. The Word of God is like those pesky Israelites in Egypt. The more you push them down, the more they spring up in other places. The more they increase and the more they multiply, the harder the persecution gets. And that's exactly the story of Acts as well. The more you press the church down, you press it down in Jerusalem, you press down that very seat of the church, the center place, and it springs up in Judea and Samaria and in Antioch. You and I are along for the ride. 
We are holding on for dear life to the enormity of God who is doing something marvelous and something wonderful in this world through His power, the power of the gospel that has been unleashed in this world. It is bigger than us. It is bigger than Peter. It is bigger than James. It is bigger than Paul, Barnabas, and Herod. You don't have to understand it all. Bow down from Job. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no farther. Bow and be quiet before the almighty hand of God when you understand or whether you don't. And when you have been quiet, then open your mouth and pray. Hardly a chapter has gone by in this book to this point where we have not been shown the example of God's people gathered together to pray. If prayer is hard for you, if it's mysterious for you in terms of trying to figure out how does prayer intersect with God accomplishing His sovereign plan, we'll welcome it's the same way for all of the rest of us as well. Pray. Pray in thanksgiving. Pray in thanksgiving when God gives you those times of deliverances that you get to experience on earth. That's what our psalm was about this morning. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. If God has rescued you out of trouble, you gather up with the people of God, you tell us how he rescued you out of trouble, and we will give thanks with you. Now, that's trouble with a little T, but there's trouble with a big T. Give thanks for the big trouble, death and hell that you've been redeemed from, that you've been rescued from. Pray as the people of God. Pray with others. Pray for the church. Pray for the increase and for the multiplication of the Word of God and of the church and the world. Bow in silence, pray, and open your mouth. And the final answer from the book of Acts to what we do when we don't know all things and what do we do with what we do know is that we act. We are not the stagnant people of God. We do not get paralyzed, or we ought not get paralyzed, through the things that we don't understand, our uncertainty, or our confusion. We may ask the question, what about this man? What about others? But if we ask the question, and we examine these things of God, we've got to come back to the response of Jesus for us, when he says to us, what is that to you? You need to know my will for you. As for you, you follow me. We need to act within the spheres that God has given to us. They may be large, it may be a little space that God has given to you. But within that little space or within that large space that he has assigned to you, then the words which you've heard apply. 
expect great things of God and attempt great things for God because he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that that which he cannot lose. Carrie and Jim Elliott, respectively. On the front of your bulletins today, I put this verse from Jonathan to his armor bearer. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan didn't know. He didn't know whether God would give the garrison of the Philistines into his hand or not. He had to move in uncertainty. Sometimes God's people are told by God exactly what to do. Praise God. Most of the times, we have no choice but to move in uncertainty. God's word, excuse me, Mordecai's words to Esther. Who knows if you have not been put into the kingdom for exactly a time just like this? Act. Are you uncertain? Act. Having bowed, having prayed, then act. It may be that God's going to work deliverance for you. It may be that you get killed by the sword. Act. Work. Parent. Study. Love. Serve. Give. Speak the gospel. It's, it's an odd little conclusion to the passage. And Paul and Barnabas finished what they were doing there, the service that they had come to render. And they took John, who was also called Mark, and they went back up to Antioch. It's poised. It's poised. The Word of God is, is ready to go forth, but it doesn't seem that way. It seems like Jerusalem has just gotten wrecked. What a mess of a place. God says, watch what's going to happen from Antioch. Act. Through our bowing, through our praying, and our acting in the face of what we know and what we don't know, may the word increase and multiply in us and through us to this community. Amen.